0: Welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing. This one is called Diagnosing and Treating the Roots of the Financial Crisis. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. On your way in, you should have picked up the handout for today, Did Deregulation Cause the Financial Crisis, which Dr. Mark Calabria wrote for the Cato Policy Report in the July and August issue of this year. We also have copies of the book, Financial Fiasco, available. You can see Rachel outside or me afterwards, and uh, we can definitely get you a copy. Um, I've been reading this book, and I have to say that uh, Mr. Norborg has done a wonderful job explaining a very complex subject matter in very simple terms so that anybody with half a brain can read through and understand uh, most of what happened. It's probably impossible to isolate every single cause, but um, the the breadth and width of uh, the contents of this book um, it 's very striking it 's international it 's domestic it 's uh, micro it 's macro monetary policy uh, to conversations between analysts at the major financial firms so I would definitely recommend it to all of you and uh so our first speaker today is Johan Norberg. Uh, he's going to talk about uh, the roots of the crisis, how it all came about, and then uh, Mark Calabria is going to talk about uh, some, be- some ideas for improving the regulatory status quo to mitigate the uh, possibilities of such a crisis happening again. So Johan Norberg is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a writer who focuses on globalization, entrepreneurship, and individual liberty. He's the author and editor of several books exploring liberal themes, including a history of liberal pioneers in Swedish history. And I should point out that liberal in this sense is kind of the classic liberal or uh, what people internationally refer to as liberal. For example, the, uh, the German Free Democratic Party is, they, they call themselves the liberals, and that basically means a moderate form of libertarianism. Um, so he has written; he's the co-author of Another Sweden is Possible and Global Justice is Possible, and the co-editor of The Classics of Freedom and When Mankind Created the World. These are all in Swedish. Uh, He's also written In Defense of Global Capitalism and The Subject of Today's Event, Financial Fiasco, and those, of course, are in English. Uh, It's nice to have an outsider perspective on uh, all of these goings-on here in Washington and New York. Uh, Prior to Cato, he was head of political ideas at Timbro, which is a Swedish free market think tank, and subsequent to that, he was a senior fellow at the Center for a New Europe in Brussels. Johan Norberg.
1: Well, thank you very much. I, As you heard, I'm Swedish, and I live in Stockholm, Sweden. And some people have suggested that it's a bit insensitive for me to write a book documenting how America's infatuation with easy money and home ownership created the financial crisis, but let me assure you that many of these causes uh, were global in its nature and many countries and many economies tried to create a global financial fiasco, but only America had the size and the wealth to really do it. And I'm here now to try to walk us through the causes, the reasons why we really got into this mess in the first place. But let me start in the summer of 2005, because at that time, we could actually see the real estate bubble on American television. Because at that time, there was a reality show starting in the network TLC called Property Ladder, a British invention following a couple of people who bought a house, borrowed all the money, and then they fixed it up a little bit, and then they sold it at an incredible profit just months later. And only 21 days later, another reality show started in the in Discovery Home Channel called Flip This House, about flippers, following people who borrowed money to buy a house, fixed it up a little bit, and sold it at an impressive profit a couple of months later. Nine days later, the A&E network didn't want to be... Worse off, so they started their own reality show called Flip That House, about, well, you know the idea by now. People borrowing money to buy a house, and then they moved some furniture from one room to another, and then they sold the house at an incredible profit just days later. Because this was the sense that we had at at that time in the American real estate market, but also around the world, that it seemed like prices could only inflate. Prices could only rise, and you were a loser if you weren't part of the housing market. Because even if your income wasn't that impressive, even if your job might be in danger, it didn't really matter. Because when house prices increased by 10 to 15% every year, it meant that you could refinance. You could take an extra mortgage on the house because of this increase, and then you could pay off other, the, the first mortgage. You could pay for more consumption. And therefore, it was just a benefit. Well, this whole process, this whole show, could also be called how to ruin the economy in seven easy steps. And I'm going to talk about those steps, Uh, not by design, not consciously, but because of unintended consequences of human action, something that often happens when we do things. And to start it off, it started where it often starts, with monetary policy and with, with easy money in the economy. Let's go back to an era that's very much resembles our own. People, there's an economic crisis, rise in unemployment, people are afraid of a Japanese-style deflation, they're afraid of possibly a 30s-style depression. So we have to look at Fed and hope that they're going to save us with more liquidity, with lower interest rates, and that is what happened in 2001 after the the dot-com bubble and after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke and his other colleagues, uh, what they did in the few years following that was that they lowered interest rates dramatically, more than they've ever done before, from 6.75% to 1.75% at the end of the year. And they kept reducing the interest rate to 1% in mid of 2003. And this wasn't uh, just a temporary Response to this crisis, this was a uh, really a discretionary policy to um, make sure that uh, they, the economy had a better shape for the long term and avoided possible deflation, possible depression, as Alan Greenspan has defended the rate cut in two thousand and three. this was not an attempt to save a, an economy from a crash because And I quote, we agreed on the reduction despite our consensus that the economy probably did not need yet another rate cut. The stock market had finally begun to revive, and our forecast called for much stronger GDP growth in the year's second half. Yet we went ahead on the basis of a balancing of risk. We wanted to shut down the possibility of corrosive deflation. We were willing to chance that by cutting rates, we might foster a bubble, an inflationary boom of some sort, which we would subsequently have to address. End of quote. And, well, now we're in the subsequently, and we are now addressing it. Because when you lower interest rate, that's dramatically and for such a long period. And when you tell people that this is something that's for the considerable future, then you change and distort all the incentives on the financial market. As one investor put it, I don't want to be in equities anymore with these low interest rates, and I'm not getting any return in my bond positions. So two things happen. We take on more and more leverage, and we reach for riskier asset classes. Give me yield. Give me leverage. Give me return. End of quote. Because it was suddenly expensive to have capital of your own. You don't get any returns, but it's lucrative to use other people's capital. And this affects financial markets, you'll get more leverage, you'll get smaller margins, less capital, Uh, but it also affects households, of course. With those interest rates, we also see that easy money, easy money is step one. Step two is that easy money turns into more mortgages. And we can see that the price rise in housing is quite dramatic over these few years. In 2002, a year of recession, we could still see an increase in housing prices. In 2003, it climbed further, and we could see an increase by 10 to 15% every year in the American cities. Because money always ends up somewhere. And if people don't want uh, If they're afraid of the stock market after the dot-com bubble, if they're um, not interested in, in bonds in savings, well, then they might be interested in putting them in the house, where it seems uh, very, very safe. And if prices could then begin to rise, you became even more interested in refinancing, in building bigger, in buying something even larger. It felt like getting a house for free with these interest rates, as one investor put it when he bought his second house. And you could then see your house as the new ATM machine. This is where you get new cash to fund your consumption. In 2002, a year of recession, American households borrowed $269 billion more to fund new consumptions on their old houses. And especially people did this in states, non-recourse states, where it's possible to get a loan and return the key to the bank if the mortgage goes sour and walk away without any any, uh, debts left. But this wasn't just a spontaneous process by the households. If uh, easy money and money into mortgages were something that, that happened because of interest rates, we also saw so a political push from Democrats and Republicans from the left to right, a very bipartisan consensus that home ownership rates is one of the most important indicators of the health of society. And trying to increase this rate by just a few percentage points really makes it legitimate with quite dramatic um, Policies, As President Bush put it in 2002, we use the mighty muscle of the federal government in combination with state and local governments to encourage owning your own home. And there was a battery of political activities and policies that aimed at this. We had the tax deductions on mortgage rates, we had government insurance policies, we had pressure on private lenders, and most of all, we had the government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac which had as their sole purpose of getting more mortgages out there on the market and make sure that people who couldn't get credit on the market could do that anyway. These weren't small corporations. They were some of the biggest in the world. And they had a political goal set by Congress and the administration to increase mortgages. They weren't small, as I said. In 94, Fannie Mae alone introduced their trillion-dollar commitment, $1,000 billion going to people who could not afford a mortgage on the private market. In, 2000, in the year of 2000, that was done, so they started their American Dream commitment, $2 trillion with the same purpose. And this grew more and more radical. And under the Bush administration, at the moment when we saw these reality shows explaining that you you can flip a house because prices increased that dramatically, the Bush administration raised the goals for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, saying that it used to be 50% of the loans that that should be going to people with a low income. Now it should be 56%. It used to be 20% going to people with a very low income. It should be 28%. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had to respond by buying more subprime mortgages, buying mortgages based on credit uh, that was hurt in some way or another, people who weren't considered credit-worthy on the market. In the year of 2004 alone, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac bought $175 million of subprime loans. And this is a period because of the interest rates, because of the rise in house prices, because of this indiscriminatory buying of mortgages, that we saw a deterioration in the loans. More and more people entered the market. This is when you get the stated income loans. You don't prove your income. You just tell it up front, also called the liar's loans. You'll get the NINA loans, the no-income, no-asset loans, which means that, yeah, you're probably self-employed, and you probably have some sort of income somewhere. But then you also get the NINJA loans, the no-income, no-job, no-asset loan, no-problem loan, because you'll get it anyway. We'll fix this, and anyway, prices rise by 10 15%, so you can refinance if you don't have an income. And you can see where this is heading. Uh, one of the employees at Fannie Mae said, it didn't take a lot of sophistication to notice what was happening to the quality of the loans. Anybody could have seen it, but nobody on the outside was even questioning us about it, because there was so much political will in here. So we get more easy money. Easy money turns into more mortgages and mortgages. They are not what they used to be. It used to be that a lender just um, they sat on the loan. So they really were interested in the long-term prospects. If you're able to repay the loan, if you're able to pay the interest rates. But because of innovation in the financial markets and on Wall Street in the last decade, we've seen more and more securitization of the loans, which means that you basically pass the loans on to someone else. Uh, Basically, a, a good idea to spread risk, to diversify, so that you as a lender, you're not totally exposed to one part of of the country, something that was pioneered by the government sponsored enterprises who began to guarantee securitization with, because of this. But the problem, of course, is that you also create worse incentive for the lenders to make bad loans and pass them on to someone else quickly so that they face the risk rather than you. What you get is that you have a lot of mortgages. You've got a lot of, of uh, uh, houses out there, housing loans. And then you, as a lender, you take thousand loans or thousands of loans, and you put them into a pool of mortgages. You slice them up, and then you sell them on as bonds, as securities, to someone else, according to different risk classes. So that you, if, if you own one of these mortgage-backed securities, you're exposed to all the loans. Even the worst loans, even if you own a sort of safe security. But you will be the last one who loses out if there is a uh, problem on the housing market. People with the less safe, uh, the more risky mortgage-backed securities, they will lose out first. So you think you're pretty safe. And this was something that was incredibly interesting for a lot of people, partly for Wall Street uh, banks, because they earned fees on every step. When they made the loans, when they uh, packaged the loans, when they passed them on some, to someone else and they earned a lot of bonuses when they, when they did. And it, this was important for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because this was their way of dramatically upscaling their buying of more mortgages. They could just buy securities rather than, than buying loans as they were. But they also became hugely popular for one important reason. The credit rating agencies, the agencies that are supposed to tell us what kind of risks are out there on the financial markets, they basically told us that this is a great idea. This is something that's not risky, and since it's uh, not risky, it's, it's tremendously interesting because it gives you a be- much better yields than, than other ways of um, of investing. They said that the safest mortgage-backed securities, they were triple-A. They were almost as safe as government bonds. But they also said that the riskiest mortgage-backed securities were investment-grade rather than speculative, which meant that all around the world, people said that, wow. Alchemy works. It's possible to turn the lead of risky loans into gold by just sort of putting them into a package and scrambling them around and selling them in different trenches to someone else. In that case, we want a piece of the cake. And this is what, the, what happened. Norwegian municipalities bought these bonds because they thought that this was a way of uh, funding health care and education for the long term. German state banks bought them because they thought that this was a safe and lucrative investment, and the Chinese government bought them because they thought that this was the way to place their reserves. But the problem was, of course, that they... The credit rating agencies, well, some people say claim that they lied. I would just say in a more diplomatic fashion that they were systematically telling us things that weren 't true because they were in the hands of people who went there, people who wanted to buy to, to sell securities like that, paid the rating agencies to get them rated, which of course creates some sort of uh, problematic interest for the rating agencies, so they could really uh, give them bizarre ratings because they wanted the fees. Uh, We've seen a lot of uh, internal um, (coughs) memos, chats, and discussions about this in the rating agencies that are truly bizarre. That shows us that they really knew that parts of this were uh, really house of cards. As uh, one member of a committee that was supposed to value one of these uh, to one an- to another in a chat. By the way, that deal is ridiculous. I know, I know, right. Model definitely does not capture half the risk. Well, we should not be rating it. Well, we rate every deal. It could be structured by cows, and we would rate it. Well, but there's a lot of risk associated with it. I personally don't feel comfy signing off as a committee member. And then they went on and signed off as committee members because – of this interest, but you would also think that they would like to preserve their reputation on the market, not by telling us untruths. But the problem is that since the 1970s, the big credit rating agencies are not on the market. They don't have to defend their reputation because they have been given a basically a government oligopoly, monopoly power. They are, have become a part of the regulatory structure by being given the power to set the official definition of risk, to tell the rest of the market what's risky and what's not. And others are forced to abide by their decision. uh, Banks who invest in uh, different assets, they're forced to hold more capital as a safety measure if they own what the credit rating agencies consider speculative. And some investment funds, pension funds, and others, they're not even allowed to invest in something the credit rating agencies uh, don't find uh, that safe. So in other words, the rating agencies didn't have an incentive to be trustworthy, to fight for their long-term reputation or anything like that. They only had the, the incentive to please the customer, and therefore we got these strange ratings. As one director of corporate development at one of these large credit rating agencies warned the SEC In 1995. Rating agencies are staffed by ordinary people with families to support and bills to meet and mortgages to pay. Government regulators, by giving us this oligopoly power, are inadvertently subjecting those people to improper pressure and share accountability for any scandals which might result because of this inflation in ratings. But few people listen to those warnings and. Norwegian municipalities, German state banks, and the Chinese government definitely did not. So everybody entered the market for mortgage backed securities. As Warren Buffett has put it, in every bubble there's three, there are three eyes the innovators, and then the imitators, and then the idiots who just think that they will be able to, well, dance closer to the exit and leave before everything uh, goes sour. So these are some of the steps on the way to, to the the crisis. But another important step was the fact that banks who got interested in holding these securities, partly because they were so safe, so they could basically have some regulatory arbitrage. They could uh, fund it by uh, borrowing money from others at an incredibly low, low rate and don't hold hold much capital, because of. Traditionally, they would hold them on the balance sheet as normal assets in a very transparent way. But because of new international banking regulations set by the Basel Committee of Bank Regulators, it suddenly became expensive to hold assets in this transparent way. In a normal way, if they hold mortgage-backed securities, they would have to have 8% of capital themselves as a safety device. But... What happened was that these regulators said, if you do it in another way, if you create some sort of special companies that are formally independent, sieves and conduits, and put the mortgages, mortgage-backed securities into them and fund them not yourself but by, via, via short-term loans on the market, well, in that case, you don't need 8% of capital. You only need 0.8% of capital because then you only give them a credit line and say, if no one else is willing to fund these loans well, then we'll do it, but that will never happen because of all the liquidity and the short, low low interest rates on the market. So, So it's just 0.8%. So the regulators basically gave the banks a pricing list, saying transparency is costly, but the shadow banking sector is very interesting and profitable for you. And then... We got, at the same time, a uh, new accounting rules that said that mortgage-backed securities in 2007 had to be accounted for in the same way as other assets, uh, according to -to mark-to-market principles, which means that, uh, well, it might be the best way to to, uh, account for these assets. But it also means that you introduce a stronger element of pro-cyclicality. It becomes pro-cyclical. If the price goes up on the market, it means that uh, you're able to... uh, reduce the capital you, that you have. You look more solvent. But if prices could begin to collapse, even if uh, nothing has, has happened to your, your own uh, situation, it looks like you're insolvent, and then you might have to sell in panic. And if that happens, prices will cl- collapse even further, and people will be forced to write down the value even more. And then we get to the last step before we enter the crisis. Why do you do risky things like this? How come you fund Uh, governments, uh, banks, municipalities, and this way? How come that you're interested in being dependent on these short-term loans of mortgage-backed securities like this? Uh, Well, partly because there is a safety net. For 100 years, we've tried to make banking safer by introducing lenders of last resort, central banks, deposit insurances and different forms of bailouts, uh, helping financial companies that are on, on, the, on the ropes by injecting capital or buying bad assets from them or whatever. But that is also a way of making them less responsible for the decisions that they make. It creates the idea that when, if things go in the right way, you're able to privatize the gains. But if things go sour, if there's problems, well, then you can pass on the losses to someone else, to the taxpayers. And uh, the Fed, Federal Reserve, increased this moral hazard on the market in the last two decades by constantly, every time there was a bad movement on the market, lowering interest rates. By saying consciously that we will never do anything to threaten a bubble, but we will mop up afterwards. Which means that uh, the bankers began to say that there's a Greenspan put. Greenspan will save us if things are problematic. The chief investment officer of Deutsche Bank Security said that lowering a hard landing, I'm less concerned of that because I believe that Fed is our friend. And if you think that your friend is out there with limitless resources to bail you out, to lower interest rates, to supply liquidity, well, then you do more dramatic, risky, things, you can have more leverage. So these are the seven steps that, uh, that it takes to create huge problems, to store them up for the future. A lot of easy money, easy money going into mortgages. Mortgages turns into mortgage-backed securities. Mortgage-backed securities get AAA ratings, and everybody wants to buy them, and they put them in the shadow banking sector rather than in the tran- on the transparent balance sheet. And they are marked to market, And there's a safety net to encourage risks and leverage like this. And the rest is history. Interest rates, uh, sooner or later, they begin to climb back to where they used to be. And what happens then is that suddenly it's costly to get a loan, to get a mortgage, so prices begin to be reduced. In a dramatic fashion, in 2006 and in 2007, housing prices, they fall, fall off a cliff. And if that happens, well, people begin to... Buy smaller houses, leave their houses. They, uh, some of people cannot buy, pay their interest rates or their mortgages, so the mortgages go sour. And when that happens, the mortgage-backed securities also begin to go sour in many ways. And people begin to lose money in a dramatic fashion. And then the credit rating agencies say, oops, we made a little mistake. It seems like these deals have been structured by cows, and they shouldn't really be given AAA ratings. They were probably not investment grades. They are probably junk bonds. And during the whole of 2007, credit rating agencies spend day and night downgrading the ratings for all assets like this, mortgage-backed securities and CDOs and all the derivatives based on the housing market. And when this happens, people on the market panic. Because it means that the things that they own, that they thought were safe, they don't know what it is. Very complex products. They don't know uh, what kind of risk there is. They only know that there's a triple A rating. They begin to understand there is no triple A rating. We have no idea what we've bought. So it becomes incredibly risky. And then people abandon the market. They're not interested in in being there. And they are definitely not interested in giving short-term loans to banks to fund mortgage-backed securities and CDOs like that. So they leave. They exit the market. And when that happens, the risks are back on the balance sheets. Banks who thought that they could fund them by giving, handing them out to, to different investors in other places, they realize that they have to fund it themselves, so they need a lot of capital. But they also need even more capital now because according to banking regulations, they now need 8% of capital as a cushion for, for owning assets like this. And furthermore, because of the mark-to-market accounting, when prices now begin to collapse, they have to uh, write down the value of all of these assets. So they need even more capital to sponsor all their losses. And this is the history of 2007 and the first half of 2008. Banks are just trying to get as much capital as possible because they've made incredible Losses. Mike Jones put it best in a cartoon in a syndicated column in late 2008 when the client walks into the bank and asks the banker, I'm here to ask you for a loan, and the banker responds, oh, that's funny because I was just about to ask you the same thing because banks now wanted their money back because this was a matter of survival, and when that happens, they can't give new loans, and they take loans away from others. This is the crisis. This is when people begin to realize that no one is safe out there. We we don't know what kind of losses these banks have done. We don't know where the risks are. So let's just avoid them. Let's just stop making any businesses, even with the biggest ones. So... That's the background, I think, personally, and that um, the way that politicians, that the government responded was also a, an important factor behind the, the panic that uh, uh, took place on the market, because they, it seemed like they didn't have, really have an idea on what to do when things began to fail. What they did was that when Bear Stearns failed, they gave them some sort of Uh, forced marriage with a government-sponsored dowry, selling them to J.P. Morgan. When Fannie and Freddie failed, they instead nationalized them. And then suddenly Lehman Brothers fails, and then there's an attempt to build a private bailout. It fails, and they collapse. And the day after, the insurer AIG is given a government bailout, and then the government says, okay, let's do this in another way. We'll just buy the toxic assets from the banks and uh, selling this package to Congress by saying that we'll see an absolutely disastrous financial panic. The whole American economy is in danger if this does not happen, which, of course, is a way of saying that, uh, okay, there's panic coming, especially when when Congress says no in uh, in the first round. But later on, when some people who are advisors to the Minister of Finance says, there's something strange about this attempt to buy toxic assets, because the questions that they ask me they give me the impression that they have no idea what they're doing. And it turns out that they had already decided that they were going to abandon the plan to buy toxic assets before Congress voted in favor of it. Instead, they decided to inject capital into the banks. So it's reasonable that investors now on the market who are afraid of the banks, who look to the government for advice, say, oh, my God, they make it up as they go along. They have no idea what happens right now. And how are we supposed to do in that case? We have no way of understanding what the future will bring, what to do with our our, uh, dangerous assets. So then the question to wrap this all up is, who did it? If this is a crime story, who did it? And it turns out that everybody did it. Everybody was a part of this. The households, the banks, Wall Street, but also the politicians, the central banks, the regulators. It has been said in the debate that this is a failure of laissez-faire. But uh, the thing is that the invisible hand was nowhere to be seen. Uh, according to, well, Financial Times has tried to draw a graph of, of the number of American regulatory institutions, and they find out that there's 39,000 people working full-time regulating the U.S. financial market, 12,109 of which are based here in Washington, D.C. So we have to ask ourselves, what did they do during the crisis? And they turned out that they inflated the bubble just as eagerly as everybody else. They only had a bigger pump we can see their fingerprints all over this crime scene in the way the Fed acted to supply us with cheap money, easy money, Fannie and Freddie's activities, how the mortgage-backed securities were given AAA ratings because of monopoly power for credit rating agencies, how these assets were put in the shadow banking sector because of banking regulations, uh, because of the moral hazard that was there because of the safety nets, the bailouts, and other things. So, therefore, I think my conclusion is that we should be a bit worried when there's a popular and a political attempt to respond to this crisis now by saying, now we need more regulations to make sure that this never happens again. Because many of the causes of this crisis were previous attempts to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. Attempts, mistaken regulations uh, in credit rating agencies and capital uh, requirements and so on. I think one of the conclusions is that we must avoid monocultures like that. Regulations will always, in some ways, have unintended consequences. And if they are strict, if they're the same way for everybody, it means that they all have the same Achilles heel. If they are mistaken, if the worst comes to worst, everybody fails in the same way. It's important to have more diversity, less groupthink, and also unregulated parts of our economy that, for example, hedge funds, that might be able to supply liquidity when everybody else has collapsed because they don't face the same uh, capital requirements. I'm afraid that this is not the way the politics works right now. I think it might be that we're soon ready for an encore because the crisis was a result of too much credit, too much indebtedness, and too many bad investments. And now we respond to the crisis with even lower interest rates, with even more indebtedness, and by saving and bailing out many of these misguided investments. Instead of the invisible hand guiding the market, it's now the invisible wallet of the taxpayers that picks up and subsidizes more mistakes and dangers ahead, and that makes me a bit worried. Some people say that it will get worse before it gets better. I think personally that the risk is that it will get better before it gets worse again. Thank you.
2: I think we heard a very good description of how we got here. Uh, I'm going to ver- talk very briefly about how we go forward. Uh, my comments are going to be broken up in two segments. I'm first going to talk about the administration's proposal, uh, why I have concerns about it, uh, and then I'm going to follow with some of my own reform suggestions. Uh, and I would very strongly iterate that I believe our system is broken. So the position of not doing any reform, I think, is the wrong decision right now. But it's important that we make sure we take the right reform. Uh, I'm going to talk about these five elements of the Obama plan, which is the using the Federal Reserve as a systemic risk regulator, uh, regulating the derivative uh, positions, um, having a consumer finance protection agency, uh, increased oversight for the credit rating agencies, and merging the Office of Thrift Supervision with the Office of the Controller of the Currency. Um, these are just elements of it. I think these are the highlights and the major elements of it. There are other pieces about the reform plan, which I'd be happy to talk about in the Q&A. Uh, I also note only a couple of these elements have we actually seen legislative language on, so they are clearly likely to change as we move along. Uh, the first one, which is to have the Fed be the systemic risk regulator. Under this uh, plan, any large financial firm, and this is not just banks, these could be insurance companies, they could be uh, consumer finance companies, would be a variety of firms would have to become, and the Fed decides really who gets pulled into this, uh, if they are a systemic risk to the economy as determined by the Federal Reserve, they have to become what's going to be called a tier one financial holding company. Uh, A tier one financial holding company would be subject to greater capital regulation, greater supervision. You'd have more examinations. And and this would be very similar to the structure of the current bank holding company regulation that the Fed has over, say, Citibank or Bank of America today. But, you know, I think with this there would be a perception, you would have a list, and it would come out one way or another, whether it's through security disclosures or whether it's an actual list, uh, that these institutions would be too big to fail. Uh, One of the consistencies we've seen with the previous administration, with Secretary Paulson and Secretary Geithner now, is a commitment that debt holders and creditors will not take losses. So that anybody who 's going to get wiped out is just going to be the shareholders, but if you own debt, if you own debt in these institutions you 're going to be fine. Um, so I want to make a couple of points on this that give me great pause uh, In the first point is about the lower debt. Uh, you're probably going to see these financial holding companies see their funding costs decline 20, 30, 40 basis points, uh, and this would allow them to gain market share. This would allow them to grow. Uh, I will note we've tried this. We tried it with Freddie and Fannie, and anybody could open, anybody could enter the secondary mortgage market and compete with Freddie and Fannie. Nobody does because of the funding advantage that Freddie and Fannie have. Uh, so this is something that's going to give – these institutions that are Tier 1 holding companies, significant advantage over their arrivals. Uh, the Obama proposal also greatly expands right now the institutions that could be bailed out. You essentially have to be a bank holding company to access the discount window. Uh, by creating these Tier 1 uh, financial holding companies, you bring a variety of other institutions, like insurance companies. Uh, for instance, one of the 19 stress test institutions was not a bank. It was MetLife, an insurance company. Uh, I think we can be sure that MetLife would be considered tier one. Uh, and many other institutions, such as Allstate and Hartford, companies like that would want to be in it because they would see that their competitors would have that advantage. Um, I also question the core of this proposal is to give the Fed more discretion going forward. Uh, I once again would emphasize the Fed had this same ability over City and had it over B of A, yet the last time I checked, City and B of A were in pretty bad shape. So, I think there's a real uh, question over, this was missed last time, giving discretion to the same people who missed it last time to get it next time, uh, doesn't give me a great deal of comfort. So, I I think you need to have some resources in here uh, that make sure that this happens. The crust of the administration proposal in this regard is that the increased regulation will offset any reduction in funding costs, but most of that has been pretty vague. Uh, we've heard increased capital requirements. Uh, Johan talked about that you have to have a weighted 8% capital standard for banks. Uh, the administration has been silent. I think they need to come out and tell us what exactly they're proposing in terms of capital standards. Somehow I doubt that we're going to see 20%, 30% capital standards. I think the reality is we're going to see a 8% go to like a 10%, which I think it's worth noting. City and B of A were already over 10% before the crisis hit. So essentially we're not talking any difference. We're talking – dramatically lower funding costs for these institutions. We're talking about having a couple more regulators show up a couple more months more often, and that's about it. So uh, I think the incentive to actually do this, and I think you need to keep, in, we need to keep in mind that there will always be political pressures as long as there's discretion. Anybody who would have looked at a bank balance sheet in 2005 would have said... Oh look at these assets! Look great. Why do I need to hold more capital against them? Uh, and what they would have done is they would have called. Uh, I have no doubt that uh, if the Fed had tried to raise a capital standards on Citi in 2005, that Bob Rubin would have been making a couple of phone calls. So I'm very pessimistic that that would have actually increased. Um, and I would close on this point with a question I would put to the administration: If you truly believe that this eliminates the need for bailouts, then why don't we eliminate the ability to bail out? And that's something I want to touch on later. Uh, but the administration plan would retain the Fed's ability to bail out these institutions. That would not go away. I would more accurately characterize their proposal as not ending bailouts. It is institutionalizing bailouts. Uh, The next area I want to talk about is the uh, regulation of derivatives, specifically uh, credit default swaps. Uh, Right now, a variety of over-the-counter derivatives would be forced under the administration's plan to be standardized and traded on a – centralized exchange where there'd be a centralized counterparty. And what I mean by that with counterparty is that the centralized counterparty would stand as a guarantor of the issuer. So rather than you and I having an agreement, and if you default, I don't get paid whether I win on the derivative or not, this counterparty would step in and guarantee that. Um, And it's important to keep in mind that they'll plan but also inc- require derivative users, whether they're financial firms or whether they're industrial or agricultural firms that use derivatives, to post additional capital against their positions. Um, my primary concern with this is that a centralized counterparty does not reduce risk. It concentrates risk. Uh, it's much more likely that if that centralized counterparty itself could not guarantee the losses, that the government would be stepping in and backing up that centralized counterparty. So I think we greatly increase the likelihood uh, that we will actually have bailouts rather than less. Um, And, you know, you hear some of these arguments about, well, the regulators did not know where these uh, derivatives were and that we need to have this centralized so we can have information. You know, that's that's utterly false. We know prior to the crisis about 50 percent of the CDS market was J.P. Morgan. It's no mystery. The regulators knew this. They could have done something about it. They could have been watching JP's side. If you add Bank of American City to that, you get 90% of the CDS issuers. There's no mystery who the issuers are in this market. So the argument from the regulators that we did not know where these things were, it's false. I could find it. If I could find it, I'd like to think the regulators could. That's um, also important to keep in mind, all derivative risk sums to zero. You do not create aggregate risk. We hear a lot of the notational values thrown around. That's double counting. If I owe you a dollar, and you owe me it, and you know, that's we net we when I give you that dollar. There's not, there's not two sides of it. Um, we're also told that we need to have these centralized, and we need to know where these at, because these are the risk of contagion. And what that means is that um, I owe you a lot on my side of the derivatives. If I go down and I fail, I can't pay you, so you fail because you can't collect that, and then somebody else fails because you can't pay to them. Uh, there's almost no evidence of that actually happening. Indeed, in the case of AIG, Vice Chairman of the Fed, Don Cohn, came before the Senate Banking Committee and said not a one of AIG's counterparties would have failed had they been paid off. So the Fed itself has said that in the case of AIG, at least ex-post, there was no contagion, and there was no risk of contagion. Uh, So I think we have yet to see a real example in the derivatives market of where contagion would have brought down people, so uh, brought down institutions. So I think that that's something we really need to look at. Um, I do think that there are some changes, and I'm going to touch on this a little bit later, but there are a variety of changes that were made in a 2005 bankruptcy reform that that, uh, dealt with derivatives, that dealt with CDSs, uh, and these were exempted from the automatic stay. You file bankruptcy, all your creditors get a hold. They can't come and collect things. but they're exempted from this. You can call, if you declare a bankruptcy, counterparties can still seize the collateral that they have that you've posted in front of derivatives. Uh, I think we need to really examine that. I don't have a firm conclusion either way, but I do think that if you look at what happened with AIG, what drove AIG were the collateral calls that were made by its counterparties, and AIG could not raise that collateral. It was not the actual underlying positions that did them in. So, the question is, should they be able to be treated as general creditors if you enter into these transactions? And I also want to note a lot of underlying the debate about the der- uh, regulation of derivatives and CDSs is, is that somehow so much of this is speculative. And as we all know, speculation is bad. Uh, personally, I reject that. Uh, I think speculation is an important driver of price discovery. I also think it's an important driver of liquidity. One of the hardest parts of resolving AIG has been able to find people to take the positions they've been selling. So if you think about it that um, you hold a bond in Walmart and then you buy a CDS to hedge against the default of Walmart, but then you need to sell that CDS to raise cash, if you're only allowed to sell that CDS to somebody who owns the same bond, you have dried up liquidity in that market if they're not ready buyers and sellers, you will get stuck with something which will actually result in further price declines in that market and make it actually more difficult and actually increase the probability of fragility in that system. So I think we need to recognize and have a debate about the role of speculation in providing liquidity and, more importantly, price discovery. I think it's very important to keep in mind that it was the short sellers that discovered Enron, not the regulators. and one of the massive decisions that I think that was misdirected and did harm to the market during the crisis was the decision of the SEC to stop short-selling. Nobody likes that. I mean, it's a shoot the messenger because I don't like the message. The fact of the matter were most of these institutions that were being short-sold were in trouble. And we were, and were fundamentally had some real management problems, had some liquidity problems. Uh, I don't think hiding the truth ever helps in a, in a crisis. Uh, and I think we've seen that. So I think you-and it's also kept in mind that short sales will lose money if they're wrong. So uh, the position that we need to stamp out speculation uh, and that it's not a socially useful activity I, I think is wrongheaded and nothing but an ass- unproven assertion. Uh, and I would challenge the administration to actually back up and provide us some data with the harm that's been done by that. Um, next is being proposed is a consumer financial regulation agency. Uh, this would largely do two things. You would take a lot of the consumer protection regulations, and these would be some of the things like the truth in lending uh, or the RESPA disclosures you get when you buy a home or you get a, a mortgage of some part, and it would take it out of the bank regulators, and it would take RESPA out of HUD, and it would put it all into a single agency. Uh, Of course, the security side of this is going to be exempted and will be left at SEC, Uh, as well the commodity stuff will be left at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and the insurance stuff will be left to the state insurance commissioners uh, at this this point. Uh, But everything else will be taken out of the Fed, will be taken out of the OCC, the OTS, and the other agencies combined into a single agency so that this agency could focus on nothing but consumer uh, protection, and this agency would also take some of the Programs that are there that are meant to spur credit, stuff like the Community Reinvestment Act, the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, uh, some of these things that aren't necessarily consumer protections but are oriented around the expansion of credit, uh, would also be taken to these agencies. The second thing this agency would do, it would create standardized products. It would tell you, this is the plain, plain vanilla product that every you know every uh seller of financial products would have to offer, and, in many cases, if you wanted something other than, for instance, your 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, you'd have to sign a waiver to say, okay, I understand the risks. I move forward. Uh, and as importantly on this is that these non-standard products would have much greater rit- litigation risk, that you would uh, you'd have sort of a safe harbor if you offered the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, but if you offered a 5-1 adjustable-rate mortgage, you subject yourself to increased litigation risk if it goes bad on the part of the consumer. Uh, My primary concern with this, and this is probably my primary concern with most of the administration plan, is that they grossly mixed diagnose how we got here. Uh, I would take issue with the fact that while there was considerable fraud and there were people that were taken advantage of, most of the people were not. I scratch my head to figure out how you let somebody get in a home with zero down, they refinance out, take several thousand dollars, they walk away, and in places like California where it's non-recourse, you can't come after them, I don't know how that person's a victim in any way. And that was the majority of the market. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize and dismiss fraud, which I will note is already illegal. Um, and I think that there are legitimate questions uh, about the FBI and the, and the questions about where you're going to concentrate. We made a conscious decision to say that we wanted our law enforcement to focus on terrorism and other things and less on uh, financial fraud. We have paid a price for that. Then again, it's hard to quantify the gain in that, but I will leave that to the appropriations committees to make those appropriate decisions where they want to send the money. Um, that said, we have limited resources to combat fraud, but fraud is illegal. You can already go after it. And I will note about every state has an unfair deceptive practices act, as does the Federal Trade Commission. So it's not a lack of rules in the book. One can, ask, we can, one can literally and realistically debate lack of enforcement. That's a legitimate question. There's not a lack of rules in the book in terms of bad practices, in terms of fraud. Uh, but that's not what drove this. If you, look at the, if you look at the dozens of empirical studies that have been looked at mortgage defraud or you looked at default in general, the primary driver of a default on any credit, whether it's mortgage or whether it's a credit card, is when someone has a life event like losing their job. Um, no consumer finance regulation agency will ever come up with a mortgage that saves you from losing your job. And that's the primary driver on what's going on now. Uh, and a lot of people got in these products because of the loose monetary policy. And, and I think uh, if you want to contrast a question whether it was these bad products, let's look at the safe products. Um, the Federal Housing Administration, FHA, offers a 30-year fixed rate loan, uh, Close to no down payment. Today, it's only about 3.5%. There's no prepayment penalty. Uh, there's tons of consumer protections. They almost never throw you out of the house. You could probably be in an FHA home for years before without paying before you'd ever get put out. Yet, the delinquency rates on FHA are almost as bad as they are in subprime. And Freddie and Fannie, these so-called creators of the good products, you know, their portfolios are doing terrible. And it's not simply the, all the subprime MBS they bought. If you look at their own products that they made, their own safe you know, affordable gold-type products that they offer, the credit losses on those have been huge. So to say that it was the bad products to me, when the quote-unquote good products have done just as badly, raises the question in my mind whether it was really the products at all uh, or whether they played more than a marginal role. Uh, there's also, not, uh, you know, it's, it's left unclear whether this agency would actually look at the government-pushed products, whether uh, Fannie and Freddie or FHA would be subject to approval of this. So uh, I am concerned that if you have increased litigation risk on everything but government products, then we end up having the government dominate the market even more than they do today. Uh, And, you know, I will remind uh, all of us that my estimate is that the cost of bailing out Freddie and Fannie will exceed the cost of bailing out all the other banks. We will spend $150, $200 billion on Freddie and Fannie that we will not get back. We're getting our money back from Goldman. We're getting, we'll probably get some of our money back from AIG and Bear. We will not get our money back from Freddie and Fannie. And I think we need to be cognizant of that fact as we go forward. Um, so uh, I think a lot of that you need to keep in mind in terms of that this agency would have made no difference in my mind had it been in place five or six years ago. We'd still largely be in the same place we are today, which I think should be. To me, that's, that, that's the standard for any of any proposal. Would we be in a, would be being a different place today if it had been in place five or six years ago? And I don't think it would have been the case with this. Um, one of the things the, uh, I think the administration plan does talk about in the right way, but doesn't go far enough in my direction is the credit rating agencies. And, and Johan talked about how it was pretty easy to get a AAA. Uh, the administration's proposal, and they've been pretty vague on this, this is one of the things where we've not really seen legislative text. Uh, I think in their white paper it was about a paragraph, so it's really kind of hard to see how they're going on this, but the discussion is we're going to tighten oversight of their rating agencies. Uh, and most of this seems to be that we're going to have – more disclosure of the rating agencies. We're going to see what their assumptions are, uh, and we're going to see, you know, we're going to see what their models are. And I'm very skeptical of this because the primary part of the failing of the rating agencies was most of their forecasting was consensus. You know, if you look at Moody's or S&P's house price forecast in 2004, it wasn't all that different from what OMB or CBO or any other government agency was telling you. Uh, and the incentives for the rating agencies are to give you the consensus forecast. Um, anybody who probably would have come out and said in 2005 that we were going to see a 30 percent decline in house prices would have been laughed at. But that's what happened. So I, I'm very skeptical that you would have had, just because we would have had them show their models, that we would have seen a difference in that. Um, and I think the administration makes the wrong approach in two very important areas. Uh, we've seen it. An absolute outsourcing of the responsibilities of the regulators, whether it's bank regulators, whether it's securities regulators, whether it's state insurance regulators, so the credit rating agencies. Um, you know, people complain about that the rating agencies didn't bother to get loan level files and look at it. I mean, I, I'm shocked that a bank would regulator would go in there. OCC would walk into a bank and say, "Oh, well, this is AAA, so I'm going to hold you capital at this." OCC needs to look at the loans, and they weren't. So, uh, part of the problem with this is that. You ended up having a complete reduction, major reduction in due diligence on the part of the regulators. They didn't do their jobs by actually looking at these assets. And correspondingly, you had that from investors. Too many investors. Uh, I scratch my head and wonder who these state pension funds are hiring that they don't actually look at the assets they buy and just decide it says AAA. I've done my job. Uh, people have a, have a fiduciary responsibility beyond that after a pension fund manager to look beyond the rating, uh, and that needs to happen. Uh, to me, you know. I, I think the first thing I learned in Finance 101 was that there's a risk-return trade-off. Two assets are AAA, one is yielding 6 percent, one is yielding 13. They are not the same risk, regardless of the rating. That common sense, very basic notion seems to have been lost leading up into this crisis. Uh, And I don't think we've done anything to change that. Uh, I will also say that... There seems to be a recognition on the administration's part that the credit rating agencies have basically been given a de facto oligopoly by regulation. You cannot issue AAA securities, investment-grade securities, unless one of these agencies sign off. And people cannot hold these, uh, whether it's pension funds, whether it's banks, and whether the credit, the rate capital standards are tied to that. So we've basically given these guys an incentive to print money. And it shouldn't be shocking at all that when you create uh, oligopoly, monopoly status, they get lazy and they don't work hard. That's not shocking at all. It's exactly what you'd predict. Uh, So I think the first thing we need to do is we need to eliminate the oligopoly status of the rating agencies, uh, and we need to push the due diligence back on the banks, the regulators, and on the investor. Uh, Lastly, uh, the administration plan, I'm going to talk very quickly as we're running out of time, is a merger uh, proposed of the OTS and the OCC. Uh, And the thinking behind this is the administration has argued that you see this shopping for the weakest regulator among banks that, you know, and that undermines the severity of regulation and the proposal is to eliminate the separate charters. uh, All holding company regulation would go to the Fed. Uh, I want to basically all the regulators kind of got it wrong. And there's been almost no evidence that really back up the charter shopping story. If you look at Fannie, Freddie, for instance, they couldn't shop charters. They had one regulator. Or you look at Bayer, Lehman, they were regu- their primary regulator was the SEC. They couldn't shop regulators. So you saw tremendous failure under institutions who had no ability to shop regulators. And why I would never really see myself as a defender of the OTS, the vast majority of institutions that the OTS regulates are in housing finance. They're specialized in housing finance. So shouldn't be a shock that if there's a housing bubble that bursts, those institutions involved in housing finance would suffer greater losses. We should have seen IndyMac coming. Uh, The failure of IndyMac and other thrifts does not indicate at all that the OTS was doing any worse job than the OCC or the Fed or anybody else. Um, One of the things I think we should look at is the FDIC has complete authority already to charge different insurance premiums by charter. So if we think that we want to eliminate charter shopping and we want to make sure that the charters reflect the risk that they represent to the deposit insurance fund, easy enough. Charge them an extra premium by charter. You don't even need to pass a law to do that. They could do it today. Um, and I would note in terms of not, once again, I'm not a defender of the OTS, but it's worth noting that the problems at AIG and the problems at Countrywide were before, they were baked into the cake before these institutions became, got, went out and bought federal, uh, federal thrifts. Uh, in the federal thrifts at both of these companies were a rounding error on their balance sheets. The problems of the AIG were not from their thrifts, and the problem at Countrywide were not from their thrifts. So to sort of argue that that's the driver of it. And, and I will lastly note that uh, if you look across the states, it was not those states that are light regulation. California is the center of the housing crisis. I don't know anybody who thinks of California as a fly-by-night, non-regulatory state. Um, If you want to look at the real non-regulatory states, places like Alabama or Mississippi, Louisiana, they didn't have a housing bubble. So I think we need to have a real question, and people point to the North Carolina model as a way to regulate the mortgage market. North Carolina had default rates uh, above the national average, so there's If you probably looked at a level of regulatory stringency at the state level, those uh, states with higher regulation of mortgage brokers and real estate professionals had higher delinquency rates. So um, I think they really need to think through that model. I'm going to end with a couple of my suggestions for what we need to do going forward. My first would be we need to change the tax code bias toward debt. Uh, Right now, the after-tax cost of of debt is about 4%, where the after-cost tax of equity is about 12%. So, we have a tax code that taxes equity and subsidizes debt, and then we all walk around shocked that corporations are leveraged. Maybe if we levered the playing field between equity and debt, we'd actually get rid of some of that. Um, I think we need to eliminate the Federal Reserve's bailout ability. It's been grossly abused, uh, and this is a 13-3 ability in which they bailed out Bayer, uh and AIG, and those are decisions that need to be made by Congress. Uh, I'm, personally, I'm, I'm fundamentally very uncomfortable with the thought of five guys around a table being able to spend trillions of dollars absolute lack of accountability and transparency in that. Um, we need to streamline the bankruptcy code, and this is something I've re- re- regularly asked my friends at the Federal Reserve who keep telling me the bankruptcy code is broken. Well, what's wrong with it? Let's fix it. Uh, I think the recognition uh, is that the problem with the bankruptcy code from the perspective of the administration is that you can't, inset- you can't inject billions of taxpayer dollars into it. Um, if we need to have some sort of debtor in possession financing by the government, let's have that discussion, and let's have that. Um, but you need to I, – I would say we need to streamline the bankruptcy code so we could have an increased uh, speed and uh, way to work through these uh – um, problems with large non-bank financial firms. Uh, I talked about it in the credit rating agency monopoly. Uh, I think that's a really important part of this. Uh, Johan talked about uh, the importance of monetary policy in this. Uh, I sometimes suggest that Ben Bernanke's made me a believer in inflation targeting. He was a very big academic in that regard. Uh, it's not his uh, academic work that's made me a believer in inflation targeting. It's his own behavior. Uh, we need to constrain the Federal Reserve. Uh, I think inf- inflation targeting has a lot of imperfections, uh, but I'm willing to give it a go because I think we need to have something that stops the Federal Reserve from being the number one source of volatility in our economy. Uh, these constant inflating of bubbles and reinflating of bubbles uh, have been a disaster. And I think that's something we need to end. And along those lines, I think we need to end the dual mandate for the Fed. Right now, the Fed is told you need to keep stable prices and maximum sustainable uh, employment. Uh, The Fed has used that as a way to completely get around um, actually having price stability. I mean, all the arguments we saw from 2002 to 2005, which I will note, were three years of negative real rates. You can't have three years of negative real rates and not expect some problems to come out of that. It's just ridiculous that the Fed uh, ignored that for so long. But they did it all in the gist of, we need to gin up the housing, the, the employment market, and we're going to do it by gen up the housing market. And I will note the vast majority, the Fed is about the only central bank around the world that has this dual mandate. Almost every single other central bank has the mandate of price stability. And I think you've seen a little bit of our behavior on that. Uh, I think we need to privatize Freddie and Fannie. We need to do it in a real way that's credible. Putting them out in the marketplace just as so the two entities they are is not credible. They will be perceived as too big to fail. Uh, I guess I would say to my friends at Freddie and Fannie, if Freddie and Fannie are a great thing, then how come 12 of them won't be a great thing, or 20 of them won't be a great thing? So I think we do need, and I recognize, uh, you know, there are real arguments about economies, of scale Scale there, and we would probably see mortgage rates go up by 10 basis points, which is a tenth of a percentage point, maybe, uh, if we broke them up. Uh, but I think that the, we really need to get back and put them out there in a way that is credible. Uh, I would also end with uh, we need to really look at scaling back some of the homeownership programs. My position would be our government should be tenure neutral. Uh, I don't think of renters as second class citizens. I think they shouldn't be treated in a way that we have to subsidize homeownership. Most of our homeownership programs, like the mortgage interest reduction, do not get anybody into a home who would otherwise, they only encourage them to buy a larger home. And I think it feeds on my dish, my first point about the incentives toward leverage. Uh, you know, We need to kind of get people to be able to put more equity in their home in general, uh, and this is across our home it's programs. I know we've run over a little bit, so I'm going to close it with that.